traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Meaning we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. Hey there, I am your mad prophet of the airwaves and welcome once again to Radio Free Canada. News, notes, and opinions from the underground for Tuesday, September the 13th in the year of our Lord, 2022. Please check out the website, therichardserrettshow.com. Pierre Polyev, newly minted leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, quite possibly the next Prime Minister of Canada, unveiled his leadership team today, and he seems determined to make it very difficult for the wacky Warren Kinsella's and the wacky Gerald Butts of this world or the the woke radical activist bought and paid for media wants to make it very difficult for these characters to label him a white supremacist and a homophobe. So he unveiled his leadership team. His deputy leader is a Sikh, Tim Upal. The other deputy leader is a lesbian, Melissa Lansman. And then for good measure, party whip is Carrie Lynn Findlay, another woman. So just in case the media and the libs want to accuse Polyev of being a misogynist as well. So spoiler alert, this won't stop them. 
they will still attempt to smear Polyev, who is about as centrist and middle-of-the-road a leader one could ask for. And I'd prefer, for the record, I'd prefer someone much further to the right, much more socially conservative and not just fiscally conservative. But they will attempt to smear him. I mean, it is beyond juvenile for anyone to suggest Polyev is any of these things. How could this man be a racist? He's married to a Venezuelan, a lovely woman. So unless you're in a complete vegetative state, there's no excuse for believing this utter trash. Now, I still have issues with Pierre Polyev. He jumped on the Freedom Convoy bandwagon when it, you know, way too late in the game, when it was politically expedient and safe to do so. He sat silently for nearly two years before he objected to unethical vaccine mandates or lockdowns. And since he was elected leader this past Saturday, he has not, to my knowledge, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But to my knowledge, he has not reaffirmed his commitment to defund the CBC or to axe the existing carbon tax or the second upcoming carbon tax, the clean fuel standard tax. Despite all that, despite all of that, all of my reservations, he's still the best hope we have to rid this country of easily the most corrupt, inept, divisive, traitorous, and treacherous government in this country's history. Polyev seems to me a very a decent man, principled in matters of fiscal conservatism, to be sure. He seems incorruptible to me. I could be wrong. But to this point, I believe he is incorruptible. But I'm waiting, somewhat nervously, again, for him to reaffirm his commitment to defund the CBC and get rid of the carbon tax. And if he really, really wanted to convince me, not that he cares, but if he wanted to convince me and, and, and others like me of his patriotic Canada-first bona fides, he'd get, he'd get Canada the hell out of the Paris Accord and the United Nations Migration Pact, He's not likely to do that. I mean, let's face it, a conservative government under Pierre Polyev is not the kind of political realignment I'm hoping for. But it's a step, maybe a baby step, in the right direction. It's not the kind of political realignment that is beginning to take shape in Europe. So on Sunday, Swedes went to the polls. And although final results will not likely be known until tomorrow, it appears at the present time, as if a coalition of -of right-of-center parties and a national populist party, the Sweden Democrats, are about to form the next government. This is staggering. The center-left, which includes the governing Social Democrats, have essentially ruled Sweden since the 1930s. And Sweden, I I don't think there's much argument, the most liberal country in Europe. But Sweden has a major, major crime problem. Once one of the most safest places in the world, Sweden now is beset by violent crime. And Swedes are clearly fed up with a mass migration of asylum seekers who have refused or have been unable to integrate into Swedish society or culture. So for that that country, for Sweden to move to the right is very, very telling. And later this month... 
Italians will go to the polls, and it seems at this point quite certain that another nationalist, populist, conservative figure, Georgia Maloney, will lead her brother's party to victory, and together with uh, two other right-of-center populist parties, will form a supermajority in Italy's parliament. Next year, look for Spain to also elect a nationalist, populist, conservative party, Vox, the Vox Party. So Europe is undergoing a fairly rapid political realignment. And we'll see the first stage of the same type of realignment in the U.S. in less than two months when the U.S. midterm elections take place and the Republicans will win a sizable majority in the House and they will also take back the Senate with a good shot in 2024 of forming a supermajority in the Senate. They won't get to two-thirds, which would be 66 seats, but they'll get, they may get 60, which is significant. And the Republican Party is being torn down and rebuilt and taken over by America First MAGA Republicans. So that realignment in the United States should be complete by 2024. So then, when will the realignment finally come to Canada? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. We are always way, way behind the curve in this little colony, this forgotten land of ice and snow. Perfect example. I mean, look, the the rest of the world has moved on from COVID. Even New Zealand, even New Zealand has dropped all mandates. New Zealand, which is ruled by a rabid international socialist. And yet Canada... Well, here we are. We have our own science here. Quite embarrassing. Oh, to have a leader like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. I love this guy. He doesn't pull punches. He doesn't shy away from calling out the ruling class, the elites. We rejected the elites, and we were right. They're now trying to rewrite history, acting like they wanted kids in school all along, and we shouldn't let them get away with that. But we should also point out, not only were they wrong about schools, the elites were wrong about lockdowns. They were wrong about epidemiological models and the hospitalization models. They were wrong about forced masking. They were wrong when they rejected the existence of natural immunity. They were wrong about the efficacy of the mRNA vaccines, and they were wrong when I said this, that uh, COVID was seasonal. Now they admit it, uh, but they didn't when it was obvious that that was the case. So on almost every major significant issue, uh, these elites who would show up on cable news or be wherever, uh, you know, they were wrong and they got it wrong time and time again. And so we also served in Florida as a roadblock to what I think would have taken hold in this country if it weren't for our leadership, and that's a biomedical security state. If you look at what they were trying to do with forcing of vax and passports and all these different things, uh, this country would look a lot different right now if people like me hadn't stood up and said, not on my watch, you're not doing that here. Exactly. A biomedical tyranny. I'm not sure we've completely escaped that eventuality here, however. Americans, uh, both Republican and Democrat, are coming to realize the FBI is now the military wing of the Democratic Party. That's what they are. The military wing of the Democratic Party. 
And while the left were trying to sell the Russian collusion hoax for four years, it's the FBI, it turns out. The FBI, even more than the Russians and the Chinese who have been interfering in U.S. elections. Here's the editor-in-chief of The Federalist, Molly Hemingway, explaining. The very last people on earth who should be trusted in any dispute of this nature is the FBI. The FBI admitted already that they had fabricated evidence to go get a search warrant to spy on the Trump campaign. They have done very little other than meddle in elections going back to the 2016 election. They meddled in that election in two ways, both by weaponizing Hillary Clinton's bought and paid for Russia collusion hoax, but also by downplaying the problems posed by Hillary Clinton. In 2018, they'd already known for a year that there was no Nothing to the Russia collusion hoax at best, if they ever believe it. And yet they had that Mueller probe going on and on for years to meddle in that election. In 2020, we just had Mark Zuckerberg admitting that the FBI had told him to suppress information. And you had all those intelligence agencies, agents falsely claiming that uh, the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation. And now they're meddling in this election, too. I mean, everyone knows that the Democrats control everything in D.C. Their policies are deeply unpopular. And so they're doing this raid in order to meddle in this election and then also in the subsequent one. This is a disaster for the FBI. And people in D.C. can pretend like these leaks and these court filings are anything different than what we've experienced since they began their war against Trump. But I think most of America says enough is enough and they need to stop. The FBI is beyond redemption at this point. Our, 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 our RCMP, our RCMP, not much better. I'm reading in Blacklock's reporter, only 35% of Canadians surveyed say they trust the RCMP's leader, Commissioner Brenda Lucky, 35%, and only 53%, so just over half of Canadians surveyed say they trust the RCMP, barely half. Coming up on today's broadcast, Vancouver is getting an electric fire truck. How do you think that's going to turn out? Dan McTigg will be here to discuss towards the tail end of the show. The Conservatives are smashing Trudeau and the Liberals in the latest poll. Wyatt Claypool from the National Telegraph has that story also in Hour 2. Also Hour 2, James Pugh, an independent writer and entrepreneur, says it's time the mainstream media print a retraction on this phony mass grave story from Kamloops that fomented so much hysteria last year and the firebombing of Christian churches across Canada. Ruth Gaskowski, our homeschool advisor, is here this hour. But first... Toronto police are mourning the loss of one of their own after a horrible, horrible shooting rampage in Mississauga yesterday. The Toronto Sun's Joe Warmington is next. The Richard Show off and running for Tuesday, September the 13th. Facta non verba. We're back as the Richard Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM. All right, horrible, horrible uh, shooting tragedy in uh, Peel yesterday, taking the life of a 48-year-old police constable, Andrew Hong, and uh, also leaving another innocent victim dead. Joe Warmington is uh, here from the Toronto Sun with the details. Joe, how are you? Well, I'm okay. I mean, obviously, we're all a little shook up from this, Richard. I mean, this is a shocking thing. We've covered them before, unfortunately, but you don't get used to it. And uh, I think we're all rattled by it. I mean, and we feel profound sorrow. Uh, I didn't know Andrew Hong personally, but I certainly seen around. He, you couldn't miss this guy. And I know a lot of people that work with him. So 
know, as reporters, as you know yourself, I mean, we're not police, but we work with the police closely. Mostly it's positive. Sometimes we have difference, you know, like you have to cover things that, you know, you know how it goes, but the kind of, um, I guess, uh, friendships or whatever that, you know, kind of kinship kind of develops between reporters and the, the police. So we're all hurting here. Yes, he's been described as a uh, a friendly giant. He was a big man. Uh, and obviously we uh, extend our sincere sympathies, condolences to the uh, family, friends, colleagues of police constable Andrew Hong. Um, can you piece together yeah, the... Oh, Shaquille, we should also talk about the, the second victim here. Tell us about the... Uh, the yeah, Shaquille, Shaquille Asheroff again. Yes. Another, another guy that... No, I didn't know him, but like you know... You know, neighbors uh, just like him. I mean, he's a guy with with children, and he had a little business, and you know, he was an honest uh, mechanic, and that's why he was popular. And you can see the little operation there. If it wasn't for this scumbag going there and and you know shooting it up and killing him and, and wounding two employees. You know, that this is the Canadian dream. The guy's got his little business, and people trust him in the beautiful town of Milton, which everybody loves. It's perfect, and, and, and this guy wrecked it. He wrecked the lives of a lot of people yesterday, and uh, it's senseless. And, um, you know, uh, we'll be bringing out a story uh, pretty soon about who this guy is, and when you read it, you're going to be pretty shocked about, you know, you know, we, it's not like we didn't know who he was, put it that way. Okay, so I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you're intimating he was known to police and perhaps had a, uh, a long criminal record. Just make sure you read my column. I haven't written it yet, so I don't want to give it all away here on your show. But <laughs> all right, uh, no worries, it's, Joe. Uh, yeah, yeah, but it, it's it's uh, we knew who he was. There's Got no it. excuse. For Enough, this man. Just like yeah. just like out west, there's no excuse for that guy to be on the loose to kill all those innocent people in Saskatchewan. There was no excuse for this man to be out here killing innocent people and our police. Uh, you know we. When we turn around and we're taking away, uh, you know, the, the duck hunters and the target shooters and all this nonsense, banning, you know, the legal guns and leaving the illegal uh, guns and gangs and scum out there to do what they want to do. And so, you know, uh, there'll be no attention on it, but the reality is that this guy shouldn't have been on the loose. Right. As you say, we, the, uh, the, the federal government has uh, billions of dollars to throw around going after highly trained, responsible, legal gun owners, uh, but nothing much to say when it's, you know, when it doesn't follow the narrative. Uh, these are not, you know, this was not someone who broke into a gun owner's home and, and stole a legally owned gun and, and then turned it around and used it on police. We, we know the drill. Anyway, no, not, not, not a- not everything is political, but I noticed that the, in the one in Saskatchewan, the federal caucus or cabinet, I guess, was in British Columbia, uh, kind of a working vacation at a resort, you know, nice thing, whatever paid for by us. But this time they're in St. Andrews by the Sea down in, in Brunswick. You, you think you drop all that stuff and get over here and help these families. And so, like, this is the biggest city and the biggest, the GTA in the, uh, the whole country. And it's like, we completely ignore it. But they don't want to do it because they are going to get asked some real questions. And, um, you know, the first question is, what was this man doing, you know, on the street instead of being in jail? 
right? I mean, you must sound, you must feel like sometimes you, you're sounding like a broken record because we keep saying these same, same things over and over. Why was this person allowed to be out walking the streets? Why was this person allowed to have a gun? When are the federal, when is the federal government really start going to start taking this uh, seriously? And we, you know, we'll be here probably in two weeks, unfortunately, saying the same things. Joe, I want to get you to hold on because I want you to, if you could, kind of piece together a bit of a timeline uh, of what ac- actually happened yesterday. Again, discussing the uh, the horrible uh, murder of Toronto Police Constable Andrew Hong and uh, this poor, innocent uh, business owner in uh, in Milton who also lost his life during this shooting rampage. Back with more of our conversation. Joe Warmington stays with us from the Toronto Sun. Stay with us. More to come. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serrett Show. We're back with Joe Warmington, Toronto Sun, talking about this horrible shooting tragedy yesterday that took the life of Toronto Police Constable Andrew Hong, 22-year veteran, leaving behind a wife, two children, his parents killed. Uh, he was, I guess, on a break uh, in Mississauga. He was there on a joint training exercise with uh, with Peel Regional Police as well. And then up in Milton, Shaquille Ashraf, the owner of MK Motors, also the father of two, killed in a separate shooting incident by the same assailant. This, the uh, the shooter uh, was uh, later killed by police. Can you kind of piece together a bit of a timeline of what happened uh, yesterday for us, Joe? Well, it, yeah, I do the best I can. I mean, it's one of the most confusing uh, stories that we've seen in a long time because it was developing in real time, started at around 2.15 in the afternoon when Andrew Hong went in for that break at Tim Hortons. Now, he's a trainer, so, you know, we're surmising, but, you know, he sort of sent the, you know, he kind of separated himself while they were doing their thing, and he went to get a coffee and take a little bit of a breather. Uh, it's it's unclear whether he was shot while in line, ambushed there, or when he was. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Welcome to the Agrihood. Carnes Crossroads is a new home community with a farm-to-table lifestyle. Just outside of Charleston, here, community is defined by gathering together and our deep connection to nature. Our future farm and amenities are taking root and blooming into something you've always dreamed of in a fun, healthy, and social environment. Come home to the Agrihood, where you can plant roots and thrive. Learn more at CarnesCrossroads.com. He did having a meal, but he certainly did see it coming. And, you know, from there, the gunman went out. Uh, his name is Sean Petrie. And he went out uh, and carjacked. The car shot that person. Car to Milton, where he used to work. And over at the corner of Main Street and Bronte Street, which is sort of the, I think it's the west end of Milton. It's kind of 
closer toward towards where Kelso Park is, that, that area, and um, shot three people there, including Shaquille and another guy named Prince, and a third employee, which we haven't got the name of. Um, they're all, you know, one's dead and two are, are badly wounded. Then he went off to Hamilton. Um, and we're not sure if he carjacked another car. We think so because the Jeep Cherokee that he took from the Tim Hortons was still at the garage. So he must have got over there somehow. Um, and then in the cemetery, he exchanged, uh, from what I understand, exchanged fire, but he certainly uh, was shot and killed by, we believe, by Halton police. Yes, you have taken over, Richard. Um, and that's kind of the sequence of events. You know, it, as troubling as all that is, the thing that really strikes me is what happened before all this. And you get to the heart of that, you might get an understanding of what set this guy off to do all these things. Was it that he wanted to get at a police officer's gun to have more firepower to go do the crime that he was planning? Or was there some other you know, motive? And, um, you know, I don't know if we'll ever find out, but it would be nice to know what he was doing before. And I still don't really know where he lives. I don't know how he got to this Tim Hortons. Right. So I can't yeah. figure that out. I mean, you know, did, did he take a bus there or did he leave another vehicle there? Did he, was there a carjacking somewhere else that we don't know about? There's a lot of unanswered questions. So if I understand this correctly, uh, the assailant, was he at one time under the employ of Shaquille Ashraf at MK Motors and was fired? He worked there. Yeah, he worked there four months ago. Didn't work out, according to friends. Um, he only worked there for about a month, and you know, he was fired. It didn't work out, and, and he was let go. Now, obviously, uh, that's a motive there for that shooting. Um, I don't have a motive for the Andrew Long shooting, other than he saw him and he maybe wanted to kill a police officer. But um, you know, So I don't know. I mean... Um, there's a lot of unanswered questions, as I said, and right. in particularly how, how did like this part of Meadowvale, which is part of Mississauga, which is near the 401. There's not a lot of houses, uh, you know. I'm I'm in the area now still, and it's kind of a very retail area. Lots of people working around there. There's Walmart there, and Toys R Us, and Marshalls, and all this kind of stuff. Superstore. And so, you know, what was he doing there? I mean, why there? You know, um, maybe he lived in the area, but the area, if he did, it's not quite there because there's no neighborhoods for quite a you know few streets over. So it, it's a real mystery. Uh, any um, any idea of uh, funeral plans for Constable? Here on Wednesday. Here on Wednesday. Uh, obviously, this will be this will be the largest funeral in. Toronto history, and there's been a police funeral. Um, they, um, uh, it's going to be very emotional. And obviously, Constable Hong has a family and and you know teenage children. But the fact that this went over four police services is, I mean, the police come to all the, the different events from everywhere to if a Toronto police officer in line of duty they come from all over but this is a little unique because there's four police services involved you've got hamilton halton peel and toronto police right all involved in this, this one so you can imagine that this is going to be this will be the largest police funeral ever and there's been some big ones here you will see everybody here 
And and hopefully the prime minister and the leader of the opposition and leader of the NDP and all these, you know, kind of partisan players park it for a day and come and pay respects. Because I'll tell you something, these police officers that we haven't learned, I mean, you know, I'm, I, I'm their toughest critic, as you know, like I'll write a yeah. tough story because I do my job. You do your yes, job. You and we're not, you know, like, but respect I have for those men and women and all those services that I mentioned, all the GTA service, I work with all of them and the OPP and the RCMP and they really are great. And, you know, you, when you lose somebody like this, um, it really hurts. And I hope that, um, so I don't know if it's possible, but I, I co- hope we honor, um, you know, Shaquille Asheroff in this uh, big funeral as well. I don't know how that would work or what the protocol is, but I know I won't forget him because so that's why I went out there last night. Um, because I knew that, you know, that I, I really wanted to know who this was. And you know, when I got there and I realized this is a hardworking man who just went to work, just like Andrew did. He went to work to help people. And, you know, it's just so infuriating. It's infuriating because nothing seems to change. It's infuriating because we just keep going around in circles and and, uh, shedding tears and burying people. What's changing is, I'll tell you what is changing. This is important, what I'm going to say, is legal guns. The guns that you can get are only for the criminals now. They're the only ones they're not trying to stop. They're not going to prison. Prisons are, are basically emptying out. They're changing the rules on what convictions stick, softening that. They're changing the rules on people that want to criticize the government. Changing the rules on you know, uh, how you can come and go from the country. So it's like the frog boiling in the pot. But when you're seeing, kind of, and I know we had these things, I, I've been a reporter for 37 years whatever it is since 1984 and I've seen cop killings before. I've seen all kinds of things. I mean, every year there's stuff, but it feels right now that we have no answer for it. Like before we had things like Tavis or we had all the carding, but it was kind of like street checks, you know, just yeah. basically street intelligence. Who is this person you're hanging around here? Uh, that helps you know affiliation. <laughs> like taking tattoos off. Taking Joe, I'm, I'm note of Apologies, Joe. I'm really late here. I gotta, I gotta run here. But um, uh, we'll uh, we'll speak again on this, no doubt. I hope, and um, hopefully, we'll get some more answers. And I look forward to reading your column uh, tomorrow on this. Joe Warmington, Toronto Sun. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Richard. All right. When we come back, Franco Terrazano, federal director of the National Taxpayers Federation, says the Trudeau government is not serious about affordability. Yeah, no kidding. Stay with us. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM. The Canadian Taxpayers Federation is criticizing the federal government for failing to provide serious, broad-based tax relief to help make life more affordable for Canadians. Franco Terrazano, federal director of the National Taxpayers Federation, joins us. Franco, how are you? I'm doing okay. How are you? Very well. So Pierre Polyev, newly minted leader of the Conservative Party, uh, just announced, I guess, in his first speech before the uh, Conservative caucus that he wants the uh, he's putting the Liberals and NDP on notice that uh, his party is going to fight any new tax increases by the federal government. Not much he can do, though, because this unholy alliance basically can ram through anything they pretty much want through Parliament. Uh, but beyond that, I mean, 
Um, what, what is your message to the liberals in terms of, of um, broad-based tax relief that they should be delivering? Yeah, I mean, Canadians, the message is simple. Canadians are paying too much tax because the government is wasting too much money. Okay, we've seen the government waste hundreds of millions of dollars for companies like the Ford Motor Company. That's corporate welfare. We've seen the government hand out, what is it, uh, pay raises at least one for 300,000 bureaucrats. We've seen the government spend thousands of dollars on a sex toy show in Germany. Yeah, I'm not making that up. Um, And look, this government hasn't provided tax relief, but it could provide tax relief if it stopped wasting so much money. And, you know, the big policy announcement, if I can call it that today, was the GST rebate. Now, a rebate is good for some of the Canadians who are going to get some of their money back. But if the government is willing to go far enough to admit that it's overtaxing Canadians and it would make life more affordable for Canadians if it gave money back to Canadians, then why is it tinkering around the edges when we're facing a nearly 40-year high inflation? What it should be doing is cutting taxes across the board so all Canadians can keep more of our own money in our pockets. Right. I mean, this has been demonstrated uh, as well that when you lower taxes, you increase revenue. Well, you know what? It's because you get the economy going. And we don't have an economy uh, that is really booming on all cylinders here. I don't think I'm saying anything shocking. And, and look, why, why would people come here and invest in Canada? Why would you want to invest in, in oil and gas and our resources, given the current policy and political environment? I mean, we've got such abundance amount of natural resources. But when you have a government that's chasing uh, investment away with a no more pipelines law, with, the, with a discriminatory tanker ban, with tax hikes, I mean, you can understand why investment doesn't want to come to Canada. But let me just circle back here to this whole inflation problem. You mentioned Polyev. Now, Polyev is right on the money when he says that the ballooning cost of government is driving up the ballooning cost of living. And today we get another announcement, another spending announcement from this government announcing billions and billions of dollars in new spending. Well, trying to fight inflation with more money is like trying to put out a fire with more gasoline. It's really just going to make things worse for Canadians. Right. The, the, the liberals are hitting us twice. They are fueling inflation because of their profligate spending, and then they get the Bank of Canada to print money. That's inflationary. And then yep. they tax us on top of that. And as you point out in your recent piece at taxpayer.ca, we've had three um, three taxes. We've been taxed three times during just during the pandemic, a payroll tax, an alcohol tax, more carbon taxes. What does the average Canadian now spend uh, in terms of uh, the uh, in income on taxes? Oh, it's absolutely mind boggling. So the last estimate is more than 36 percent of of your family's income is going to taxes. Okay, so that means that in 2020, during a pandemic, the average family paid thirty five thousand dollars in taxes. Now, what's so crazy about that, even just the massive bill, thirty five thousand dollars in a year going to taxes, is that if you look back in 1961, the average Canadian family paid $14,000 in taxes, which means that our tax bill, after accounting for inflation, has more than doubled since 1961. And so you know what we have from this Trudeau government? Uh, they're raising taxes, and then they're giving some Canadians back some crumbs, and then they expect us to be happy about it. Well, if you look at the GST rebate, again, I, I do think that people on modest income should get more of their own money back. But if you look at the GST rebate, that's only going to be going to about 11 million Canadians. Or to put it another way, that's only going to help not even a third 
of Canadians. So if the Trudeau government was really serious about making life more affordable, number one, it would cut taxes across the board. But number two, it would just stop making things worse by raising taxes after taxes after tax hikes. Yeah, they're just a complete disaster. And yet Trudeau, in a recent speech, has the temerity to accuse Polyev of uh, introducing reckless economic policies. (laughs) Uh, You can't make this stuff up. Uh, Franco Terrazano, federal director of the National Taxpayers Federation, taxpayer.com, taxpayer.com, the website. Franco, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me on tonight. All right. Thank you. Ruth Gaskowski. The Home School Advisor is next. Stay with us. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. The Home School Advisor on The Richard Serrett Show. you can file this under the uh, suspicions confirmed file, I guess, in the U.S., something called the NAEP report was just released confirming that the pandemic school closures led to a first ever decline in math score since they started keeping track back in the 1970s. And also, I think, uh, didn't have much nice, too many nice things to say about the pandemic lockdown effect on or school closure effect on uh, reading scores as well. Here to discuss our homeschool advisor and the founder of HumanitasFamily.net, Ruth Gaskowski. Ruth, welcome. Thanks, Richard, for having me. Uh, the NAE report. What is the NAEP? Well, it stands for the National Assessment of Educational Progress in the U.S., and it's best known actually as the Nation's Report Card is what it's called. And they released this report just at the beginning of September, and it's really the first nationally representative look at what you said. We sort of had a hunch things had gone down, but it actually shows us how bad it's been. And they looked at 15,000 students from over 410 schools. So it's very representative. And uh, these were students who were generally uh, nine years of age in fourth grade. So we're still kind of waiting for data for the middle school and high school students. So this is mostly the younger students right now. And what they found that decades of academic progress have been erased during this pandemic schooling. So specifically math scores, as you mentioned, that's the first time decline since they started measuring in the 1970s. And so they've dropped to 1999 levels. The reading wow. scores fell five points. That's the largest dip in 30 years. So the results are really sobering and they've been called kind of a historic fall off with no increases in achievement in either of the subjects for any student group. So even the high achieving students uh, either declined or were stagnant. And right. the hardest hits. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. The hardest hit students were um, that were performing at the lowest levels beforehand. That means mm. those that hadn't really mastered addition yet or multiplication or were just learning to read, they saw the school, their scores fall the most. 
And this is really striking. And I actually um, had a conversation with an Ontario teacher here because we don't really have any Canadian data yet. Of course but he not. reflected exactly what he what we saw in this report from the States. He's teaching grade five, six students and said the students that had been online for the two years showed no prog- progress. They were basically at a grade two level, even though they are now in his grade five, six class. And he has to figure out how to teach to students who are at a higher age, but still performing at a grade two level. So uh, I'm pretty sure that this kind of data is also reflected in Canada because we've had very similar practices during the pandemic. Well, and here in Ontario, how many school closures did we have? And we knew we knew from the get go that this was going to be catastrophic. And here we are with the with the evidence. Ruth Gaskowski, founder of HumanitasFamily.net. We're talking about the um, NAEP. This is a long-term trend assessment results, reading and mathematics. Uh, basically, two years uh, for these students, just gone, gone, catastrophic. Um, but it's also having the, 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 the school closures and the pandemic also had an effect on uh, staffing. So what can you tell us about what we're finding in terms of uh, of the availability of teachers in many, many places. Right, because right now is when teachers are most needed because students need to catch up. But this recovery um, is actually hitting kind of a perfect tsunami with uh, a catastrophic teacher shortage. And that sound might, might sound extreme, but listen to just a few examples of what the shortage actually looks like in the States. So, for example, in rural Texas, they are switching to a four-day school week because they don't have enough staff. Florida is asking veterans with no teaching background to enter classrooms. And some states are even hiring college students without qualifications for the K-12 system. So, Florida alone has 8,000 teacher vacancies. And we don't really know how big uh, the lack is nationwide because there's no national database. But from state and district reports, they indicate shortages from hundreds to thousands of teachers per state. And so this is kind of a confluence of factors that has led to this shortage, including kind of pandemic exhaustion for teachers, because for many of them, it has been the hardest time in their career to try and negotiate the online teaching and learning. There's low pay decreased respect, and now in the U.S. also a growing educational culture war. So as a result, they've had to kind of bump up class sizes, often doubling them, lower teacher qualifications, and all of that leads again to the diminishing of uh, students' ability to learn. So really, rather than getting a course correction in trying to help them academically after the pandemic gap, um, they face possibly an even bigger decline. Right. And uh, I understand that this, um, you know, this lack of un- underqualified teachers has even affected your ancestral home of Switzerland. Yes, this was a true surprise to me when one day I was at the grocery store and I a glance at a headline in a major newspaper saying homeschooling on the rise in Switzerland. And I was like, really? This is one of the best educational systems in the world. But even there, parents are concerned that their children have fallen behind academically and fear that the lack of qualified teachers will continue to impact their children. So even Switzerland is facing a move toward homeschooling um, because it's, it's kind of a catalyst uh, because parents feel that uh, they can offer them uh, one-on-one attention, target their academic needs, and um, do the one-on-one teaching that will help their students to actually catch up and succeed. 
Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. All right. Great story, Ruth. Thank you for sharing that. Ruth Gaskowski. Homeschool advisor, again, founder of HumanitasFamily.net, H-U-M-A-N-I-T-A-S, HumanitasFamily.net. We'll talk again next week, Ruth. Have a great rest of the week. Talk to you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Hour two coming up. Uh, James Pugh will be here, independent writer, father, entrepreneur, covering the uh, culture wars. And uh, we're going to talk about, well, he he wrote an interesting piece, uh, I guess, for his... um, Substack about something that took place a year ago this past summer. That is the uh, the hysteria created around these false. Well, at the present moment, these are unproven claims. Let's put it this way: about mass graves at a residential school near Kamloops, and uh, we know all of the the trouble that 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 fomented. This story that was uh, promoted in the mainstream media. And uh, no evidence that any of those accusations are true. And, of course, it resulted in a firebombing of churches across Canada. James Pugh says it's time for a retraction. We'll uh, talk to him. Also, we'll uh, check in with Wyatt Claypool from the National Telegraph. The uh, Conservatives under new leader Pierre Pauly have smashing Trudeau in the polls. All that and much more coming up. Hour two of The Richard Serrett Show. Don't go away. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Repeating, we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. You're out of order! You're out of order! The whole trial is out of order! You have meddled with the primal forces of nature! And you will atone! Hey, welcome. Please check out the website, therichardserrettshow.com. Hour two. If you missed hour one, 
That's too bad. You missed a lot, but still plenty of great programming coming your way. Tail end of the program, we'll revisit an earlier conversation I had with uh, U.S. political analyst and author Joel Gilbert, also a documentary filmmaker, wrote a book, Michelle Obama 2024, uh, talking about, well, she and uh, the former president, Barack Obama, about a week ago, returned to the White House and uh, to unveil their official uh, portraits. And uh, he has some interesting observations about what that visit uh, portends and uh, why it's important and, and why it may indicate that Michelle Obama is getting ready to announce that she'll be she'll be running for the uh, Democratic nomination for president in 2024. And he'll also reveal some things about Michelle Obama uh, that have largely been ignored by the mainstream media. Dan McTagg will be here, president of, of Canadians for Affordable Energy. It is to laugh. Vancouver is getting, wait for it, an electric fire truck. You heard me correctly. An electric fire truck. What could possibly go wrong? Oh, dear. Wyatt Claypool, senior contributor with the National Telegraph, will be here. According to a new poll from Main Street, Pierre Polyev's conservatives are smashing Trudeau and his liberals in the polls by about 12 points. 12 points. All right. As promised, we're going to talk about all of these claims that were made, I guess, going back to May of 2021. Mass unmarked graves on the site of a former residential school in Kamloops, none of which have been substantiated. What, well over a year later? And what did this hysteria foment? Firebombings of Christian churches across the country uh, and, and more. And James Pugh uh, wrote a very poignant piece. It was uh, published by uh, True North, and uh, I wanted to bring him on. This was uh, a couple of weeks ago, but it's, it's very important, I think, to discuss. And uh, James Pugh is an independent writer, father, entrepreneur, covering the culture wars. He's a strong advocate for liberalism and the cherished Western freedoms associated with truth-seeking. And uh, his substack is wokewatchcanada.substack.com. Wokewatchcanada.substack.com. James Pugh, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm fine, Richard. How are you? Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Take us back to uh, the, 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 the uh, I guess it was the Kamloops Band uh, press release, uh, May of 2021, and what those claims were. Well, I mean, originally the media took off and it was a mass grave thing. Um, they and it, and it was implied that it was of murdered children, Um but really what this story originated from was um, the tradition under the traditional knowledge framework in indigenous, indigenous culture, they have uh, knowledge holders who have knowings and they had a knowing that there was some kind of a, a grave or something in this apple orchard. So that's why they ended up doing ground penetrating radar searches in that area. But as this research group I'm working with, we were uncovering all kinds of things that make the story not plausible. Uh, for example, CTV re did an interview uh, with a lady named Emma Baker, who was a student at Kurz from 1952 to 1956. And she told the reporter that her and her friends used to make up stories about dead children buried in the apple orchard. 
her and her friends. This is implied that these are ghost stories, urban myths that later were amplified by a known defrocked uh, United Church minister and debunked conspiracy theorist named Kevin Annette. He later amplified these um, urban myths and ghost stories. And then it was conflated into traditional knowledge and um, the, the knowings of, you know, these knowledge keepers. And then when she, when this lady found um, the, the archaeologist found uh, soil disturbances with, G, with ground penetrating radar, we think what she actually found was a septic trench that was dug up way back in the 1930s. Um, another researcher who's anonymous named Cam Rez, who's been uh, his He's been verified by journalist Terry Gavin. He's a uh, architectural consultant and a site survey expert, and he's gotten hold of all the documents related to that specific site, the apple orchard in Camera Loops. And there were 2,000 linear feet of drainage trenches dug there um, where set where drainage tile was installed. And it's in the exact same orient, east-west orientation as the GPR um, readings, the radar readings, said that the graves were, which would be consistent with a burial pattern. But really, it's consistent with the drainage trench pattern. Um, and, the, and the drainage trench is shallow. It's not deep. It's, it, it's the same signature as if it was a shallow grave. Right. So the claim, the original claim was that this GPR, ground penetrating radar, had discovered the remains of, I think it was 215 indigenous children that were buried, again, on the former site of this residential school in Kamloops. Uh, but it, but it, what they there was no excavation. Uh, no. All they discovered all, all this GPR shows are, as you say, soil disturbances. That's all yes. they found. Uh, and yet, as you point out in your article, the government went ahead with that. The government took the lead, really, uh, as well as the media. Yes, and they put out this official motion that they adopted. Uh, again, reiterating that there was a discovery of 215 indigenous children buried on this former site. No excavation, no evidence whatsoever. That's right. And the, the GPR technology is not capable of confirming what's underneath the ground. Soil disturbances could be tree roots. It could be all kinds of things. But we, the, the, we have reports and we have site survey data of that area. And we know that extensive excavation and construction of septic field and drainage trench and septic tile and drain or drainage tile has been installed in the exact area. So that I, that's a plausible story, not the ghost stories that were made up in 1952 by Emma Baker. That's not plausible that that six year olds were woken up in the middle of the night by priests to help bury uh, dead children that they had just murdered. You know, that's not a plausible story, but the story of the drainage if we just do an excavation and dig up, we could figure out what's there. And I'm sure we're going to find septic tile, not not any clandestine burial. So what is happening with this uh, in in the intervening? Well, not quite 18 months uh, since the story first broke. I mean, are are there plans to do an excavation? Are there are there plans for the the Kamloops band to come forward with with some findings of an investigation? Well, they have said that they will, but it hasn't happened. Um, what I'd be advocating for and what I have been advocating for is for the RCMP to take over and make it a murder investigation because some of the claims involve people that would still be alive. Maybe the people, if, there, if some of the claims of these children that would be buried there, the perpetrators would still be alive to this day. Some of them could be. 
So if, they, if this is the case, why is this not a crime scene? If this was a Jonathan Kay made this point in his Quillette podcast, I believe that yes. if this would have been uh, a claim of white children, 215 white children mass grave, there would have been an RCMP investigation and there would have been excavations immediately. The fact that this is being drawn out is a is indicative of how things go in the Aboriginal industry, which is the activist driven arm of Indigenous issues. It involves the neo-tribal elites, um, the privileged Indigenous leaders, and it involves a bunch of non-Indigenous people, lawyers and consultants and a whole slew of activist academics who are all kind of working to bolster this, this industry that's really a rent-seeking industry that uses things like sensational stories to gain um, you know, guilt and, and uh, you know, to gain the attention of the media and then eventually to extract money from the government. Right. And then use indigenous peoples as as pawns in this game. Uh, and they end up looking backward in anger, as you point out in your Substack article, instead of, you know, forward with, you know, how can we uh, how can we all help to improve, you know, the lot of indigenous people? They still have, you know, severe problems with, you know, lack of access to clean, safe drinking water. And none of this is to to lessen the um, the experiences that ind- indigenous people had in residential schools. This is quite separate and apart from that. This is, as you say, I, I like that term. It's the Aboriginal industry, uh, and and many of the people who who toil in that industry are not uh, Aboriginals. Uh, they are unelected, unaccountable activists. James, hold on. We'll uh, come back and, and discuss further. James Pugh, independent writer, father, entrepreneur, and again. Uh, the uh, Substack is wokewatchcanada.substack.com. More with more of our conversation right after these. Welcome back to the Richard Serra Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. So, 15 months ago, 16 months ago, the uh, the media was promoting this narrative. That uh, human remains, 215 children, indigenous children, had been found in a mass unmarked grave on the site of a former residential school in Kamloops, British Columbia. And to date, no evidence to suggest that there's any truth to that. And uh, and yet, think of all of the um, the hysteria that ensued, fire firebombing of churches across the country. Canada Day celebrations were canceled. Uh, statues of Sir John A. Macdonald and Queen Victoria and Edgerton Ryerson uh, were toppled and, and uh, defaced. A university was renamed. James Pugh is independent is an independent writer, father, entrepreneur, and again uh, writing about this. His Substack is wokewatchcanada.substack.com. So you'd like to see a a retraction at the very least from. The mainstream media, correct? Yeah. Um, that would be that would be a good start. Um, but what else? As I say, you know, f- what about the churches that were de- desecrated and firebombed across? I mean, there's no, yeah. there's been no, there's been no, you know, recompense for that. There's it. This goes uh, very deep. As far as the truth and truth and reconciliation commission. For as uh, you know, for well as well intended as that was, um, it was sensationalized as well in the very much the same way as the unmarked grave story was. Um, 
there were many priests and oblates and nuns that worked in those systems that, that were great for the kids and, and dedicated their lives to it. But their stories are not represented at all. So that's kind of a crime in itself, the fact that the narrative is so one-sided. That's not to diminish any of the wrongs that did occur, because they did. But we're talking about a 113-year history of residential schools where 150,000 kids went to them over that time. Um, and it's being construed by the activist world, first as cultural genocide, which is a non-term that comes from postmodern non-speak. It's an extra legal term, but really they drop the cultural anyway, and they, they're trying to equate uh, what happened in residential schools with genocide. So the unmarked grades is proof of this. Um, and the thing is, what has captured um, activism and the, the modern media is just not up to the task to um, to deal with this, is the, the postmodern turn into epistemology. Postmodern conception, like, conceptions like relativism, where you must believe the knowledge keepers. You must believe the survivors of Indian residential schools. You must believe the claims of oppressed identities. This is all in the, under the framework of postmodern wokeism. Um, this is the problem. Um, we don't have people, well, we do actually, they're independent researchers, the people that I'm working with that are actually using empirical methods of objective truth-seeking. But our media mostly just kind of put, puts microphones in front of social agitators and activists and, they, and amplifies their message, but can't decode the language of the activist. The activist language, this postmodern language, is obfuscating what they're actually saying. It, it's confounding. People don't realize what they're saying. Anti-racism does not mean anti-racism. You know, and this is on and on and on. We could, we could break down the language, but the modern media is not up to the task of doing this. So it's, it's up to independent researchers. And like I work with a lot of uh, actually uh, retired academics because they can get into these topics without fear of being canceled. Uh, uh, Francis Whittleson is a good example of an academic who is canceled for questioning the claims of activists. And that's a shame. Because of, go ahead. No, no, no. I was, I was just uh, saying I, I'm familiar. And also um, you, you do mention anthropologist Jaime Rubenstein, who was on this yes. program several months ago talking about this very issue. And you quote him in the, in the article. He calls it the soft bigotry of low indigenous expectations, which is, I'm, I'm almost over time right now. But I just if you could maybe in 30 seconds explain what what Jaime Rubenstein means by the soft bigotry of low indigenous expectations. Well, that is what comes from the activist world. The activists want everyone to believe that the indigenous are just so helpless and they, can, they couldn't be individuals. They couldn't possibly take care of themselves or, in some cases, be responsible for the crimes they commit, including mass murder. We have indigenous activists who are already apologizing for the mass murder that just happened. So that's what that is. And instead of treating indigenous people like regular Canadians, we treat them like they're less than, like they deserve special treatment or something. And that's what the postmodern frameworks around anti-racism and decolonizing, that's what all of this does. All of it is soft bigotry of low expectations. Um, and it's, it's very racist, even though it claims to be anti-racist. James, a great piece. Again, uh, wokewatchcanada.substack.com. It's also been reprinted by our good friends at True North, tnc.news. I hope to have you on again and um, talk further about other things. Anytime. Thanks, Richard. James Pugh, independent writer, father, and entrepreneur. All right. When we come back, 
Wyatt Claypool, senior contributor with the National Telegraph, to talk about a new poll showing Pierre Polyev's conservatives absolutely trouncing Trudeau and the Liberals in the latest poll. Stay with us. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Welcome back. So Saturday night, as Pierre Polyev is being crowned the victor in the conservative leadership contest, there was a new poll released by Main Street Research showing Polyev and the Conservative Party absolutely trouncing Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's liberals. Here with more, Wyatt Claypool, senior contributor with the National Telegraph. Hey, Wyatt, how are you? Not too bad. Thanks for having me on the show again to talk about polls. <laughs> My pleasure. My pleasure. So um, the, the, the wording of this poll is significant. Explain. This isn't just the conservatives versus the liberals versus the NDP and the bloc. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Yeah, yeah. so what happened was a lot of times when they do a party poll, it's just conservatives, liberals, NDP, Greens, and they just kind of list out the parties and they poll them. This one was specifically um, addressing who the leader of each party was so that you know that you're not just voting for the generic conservative party or Candace Bergen's conservative party. This one said it was Pierre Polyev's conservative party, and in the poll, the conservatives were leading the liberals by 11.9%. So the conservatives under Polyev, again, the question is, what if Pierre Polyev was leader of the conservative party? I mean, I mean, or, or the, I'm sorry, that wasn't the wording. That's on the... Um, on the graphic, but the, the, the wording makes it clear. Pierre Polyev leading the conservatives, Justin Trudeau leading the liberals, Jagmeet Singh leading the NDP. Who will you vote for? And the conservatives come out to- on top 39%, the liberals 27.1%. So almost 12 points separating the conservatives and the liberals. Um, I mean, even with our, our clunky electoral system that we have, that would, that would be enough for a majority conservative government, would it not? Yeah, like the conservatives mostly have to lead by like about four or five points based on the la- the way the last two elections went in order to win a majority. Uh, like we, they won the majority in terms of the vote, uh, the uh, ball- uh, votes by like one or two percent or one and a half. Uh, if they went up a little bit from there, they'd probably have a majority. I don't think this poll from Main Street would be exactly how it would go down. I don't think we think that the the conservatives are going to get 40 percent and the liberals are going to get only going to get 27. But th- what this is demonstrating is like a confidence interval for the liberals. 
the fact that in polls we're consistently seeing now almost no matter who does it the conservatives are at least up by a few points if not something like 10 points demonstrates that liberal voters are very unenthusiastic like all the abacus data polls which are very telling are showing that justin trudeau's approval rating his job approval has been floundering around 30 to 35 percent for a few months now and when there's no massive scandals plaguing the liberals at the moment like there's some minor ones that are continuing but when there's no massive scandals and yet their popularity is still in trudeau's popularity still at the bottom 30s that's when you know he's in trouble it's when people have just gotten tired of him right there's just a a general malaise which is what you get when you vote in the liberals just a general malaise uh if trudeau and his people are looking at these polling numbers um I mean, if they see that they're down by 12, I I have to think they're less inclined to call an election. I mean, unless Jagmeet Singh forces their hand uh, with, you know, with a vote in parliament, a vote of confidence vote. um, It it would seem to me that if these polling trends continue, we may be stuck with Trudeau until 2025. What are your thoughts? Well, I think that Main Street's probably the most hawkish pollster when it comes to the Conservatives' chances of winning. I would say it's probably when you when you aggregate them all together, the Conservatives are still leading, but not uh, but. I, by enough of a margin, I think that Trudeau will still decide to go for an, an earlier election. Because the problem right now for Pierre Polyev is when his name recognition is only about 50% in the country, I guarantee you that Trudeau thinks that at very least he can do a massive smear campaign for a little bit, then jump to an election and hope that enough people have a short-term bad impression of Pierre, uh, Pierre Polyev that he can win. And I think this is what you're seeing reflected in the media coverage, is immediately they turned on a dime and now they're like basically accusing Pierre Polyev of being Trump or Hitler, uh, either one, they think that he's somehow like the next big evil or something uh, like David Aiken absolutely going like uh, like going hysterical during a Pierre Polyev press conference just a few hours ago was very telling the fact that they're trying to get early shots in on him and they won't even let him finish like a single speech in front of them because they're too busy trying to get the attacks out. Yeah, I, I can't th- I th- think of a more innocuous centrist uh, political leader you know, 30 years ago, I was saying the other day, 30 years ago, uh, Pierre Polyev would have fit in quite nicely in a Jean Chrétien cabinet. I mean, he is that centrist. Uh, yes, he's he's a fiscal conservative, but so was Paul Martin and so was, you know, Mark Lalonde and, and, and different finance, um, um, McEachern, uh, as I recall. You know, he's, he's such a, a, a centrist. Anyway, uh, I'm wondering how much of, you know, trying to get ahead of all of these smears, um, is behind his announcement, you know, unveiling his leadership team, which includes which includes MP Upal as uh, a Sikh uh, from out west as deputy leader, and also Melissa Lansman, who is gay. Pretty hard to smear him yeah. you know, with uh, those two flanking him as his deputy leaders. Yeah, they're definitely going to try, and I think that's where Justin Trudeau is probably going to face plant if he calls an early election. He, I don't think that the the attacks are going to stick as well as he thinks, especially because Pierre Polyev has demonstrated that he will take the accusations against him head on, and he's not going to kind of be like Aaron O'Toole and Andrew Shear, where they're going to apologize for being attacked. Exactly. All right. Well, we'll watch uh, with interest and uh, I'll, I'll pray for an early election. Wyatt, always appreciate your insights. Thank you so much. Of course. Thanks for having me on, Richard. 
Wyatt Claypool, senior contributor with the National Telegraph, thenationaltelegraph.com, thenationaltelegraph.com. Please support independent media. All right. Vancouver is getting an electric fire truck. What could possibly go wrong? Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, is next. Just having a little chin wag on the Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 a.m. All right, you can't make this stuff this stuff up. Vancouver is poised to be the first city in Canada with an electric fire truck. Oh, bless their hearts. The city has ordered a Rosenbauer RT pumper truck as part of its goal to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by... 60% by 2030. Deputy Fire Chief Tyler Moore said he expects to have the Rosenbauer responding to calls or not responding, as the case may be, by 2023. The battery-powered Rosenbauer, which recharges when parked and plugged in at the fire hall, uh, comes with a diesel range extender, which allows the truck to be operated for longer than its normal range of about 100 kilometers and 90 minutes uh, what could possibly go wrong? Here with more, Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, how are you? <laughs> Fantastic. Just uh, glad I don't live in Vancouver waiting for uh, my house to catch fire. <laughs> uh, precisely. Uh, this The cost of this pumper truck apparently is something like $300,000 more, $300,000 more than the diesel model. It pumps 40% less water. And uh, again, has a, a, a you know a rather short range, so they have to have a diesel um, range extender <laughs> included. What are your thoughts? I think I know. Uh, what's, but- uh, what's what's the point? I mean, seriously, what are you trying to prove? You're trying to be trendy with uh, with a dangerous situation. Look, I don't mind if this is going to happen. People want to drive around in these vehicles and have a little bit of fun, but wouldn't it be wiser not to forget the cost alone, which is prohibitive? Would it not be better to stop experimenting in cases where you're dealing with Human lives. I mean, have we gone completely? uh, We bereft. uh, We lost track of what the purpose of these vehicles are. Look, the world is pointing that these things don't work. Uh, It doesn't matter how much energy, how much money, how much uh, rhetoric goes into it. They're just not up to the game. Right. I mean, if if these things were so reliable, why would they that have to have a diesel range extender? You know, they're going to be relying on that an awful lot. Well, yeah, of course they are, uh, if they, in fact, use that. Now, they don't have to deal with what, you know, electric buses have to deal with in the winter, which is they're so damn heavy. Uh, they, they freeze in cold weather. You don't hear a big deal about how great those buses are, you know, anywhere from, say, November all the way to March now, do you? And the reason for that is because, again, it's virtue signaling. It's not really about practicality. And worse, you're potentially playing with human lives. So I think at the end of all of this, um, Europe is showing the way as to what not to do. Um, This is going to be a pivotal winter. And uh, all the wokesters out there know that. They know full well that the uh, green fanaticism and the idea that we could simply turn a switch off or on and we could make that great transition isn't happening. To the contrary, it's actually blowing up in our hands. And so, you know, Vancouver's got a lot of money to throw around. Yeah, they do. You know why? There's a, there, I just got finished doing an interview with uh, uh, one of the uh, broadcasting stations over there. Omni, I think it was. And I'm doing another one with Global later on. But both of them, I have to say, hey, you know what? You're paying the highest taxes for any jurisdiction on fuel in the world, in North America, rather, not in the world. Uh, and that is two carbon taxes, a clean fuel standard, a carbon tax. You pay an 18.5 cent a liter transit 
uh, tax. I mean, when do you folks not realize that all this stuff is not producing one iota of difference in terms of your so-called emissions? If in fact carbon molecules are a bad thing, last time I checked, it's part of the, uh, the part of the cycle of life. But let's not get into that debate. Just the whole point is, uh, you know, Vancouverites vote for this stuff. They can damn well pay for the stuff. I just hope to God none of them are on the receiving end of an engine that doesn't work when it's needed most. Oh, and, and let's just pray that they come to their senses before somebody, some moron comes up with the idea that now all their ambulances may be. Uh, oh, OK. Yeah. <laughs> That's not far away. Look, uh, these are computers. OK, these are, uh, you know, we, we, we have to plug in our phones. Let it run for eight or nine hours and find out what happens. I think what we want, you know, maybe commendable. I think what we want may be aspirational to use the word, but they are completely, completely bereft of reality and practicality. And it's for that reason that uh, I think people who aren't uh, completely bought up and bought on and aren't uh, green grifters uh, are rightly saying this is a stupid decision by the city of Vancouver, but Hey, uh, you know, you guys, obviously people over there don't have a problem with paying higher taxes. It explains the exodus from Vancouver. Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for affordable energy, affordableenergy.ca. Dan posts some great articles there as well. Dan, thank you as always. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me again, Richard. Cheers. All right. Bye-bye. When we come back, political analyst, filmmaker, and author of Michelle Obama 2024 will be here. Stay with us. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. Uh, Just under a week ago, the former president, Barack Obama, former first lady, Michelle Obama, returned to the White House for the unveiling of their official portraits. And um, my next guest is... Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Quite certain that Michelle Obama will be running for the Democrats as the presidential nominee in 2024 and may have a clear path to the White House. Joel Gilbert is a political commentator, foreign policy analyst, and the author of Michelle Obama 2024, Her Real Life Story and Plan for Power. Joel, welcome back. How are you? Hey, great to be here. Thank you. Likewise. Um, 
Your thoughts on the uh, the unveiling. Uh, uh, this is the first time I understand in about a decade that a former president and a first lady have been invited back to the White House for an unveiling. Uh, this, you know, a tradition that didn't happen during the Trump years. I don't imagine he's going to be invited back to the White House for an unveiling of his portrait anytime soon. Um, he may have to do it himself in 2024 if he wins. Is there any any signal there? Does that is that supposed to send some kind of a signal about you know Michelle Obama coming back onto the onto the the, the stage? Maybe a, a, an indication yeah. she's going to run. Yeah, well, it was a pretty interesting event. Uh, it was Michelle's first time back at the White House actually since uh, since she left in 2016. Uh, you might recall Barack had been there last year for an event in which uh, all the staff fawned over him and cheered him. And he completely ignored Joe Biden in one of the most pitiful moments in presidential history. You remember the video of Joe Biden wandering around the room and trying to get Barack's attention, tapping on his shoulder and Obama kind of blew him off. It was very sad. That just shows you how popular Obama is with the staff compared to Joe Biden. Uh, This event last week was the unveiling of the portraits. And Barack gave about a five-minute speech and mostly made jokes, didn't really say anything of substance. When Michelle Obama spoke for five minutes, she gave a very political speech. She took a swipe at Trump. She said, well, when our time was up at the White House, you know, you just got to move on. Uh, She used the words, our democracy, which is a big Democrat talking point. And she went through her own little history, which she's been talking about for 15 years, She talked about how she wasn't supposed to have her picture hung in the White House with Dolly Madison and Jacqueline Kennedy. She wasn't supposed to be there. That's this story she's been pushing for about for many years that she uh, goes through in her book, Becoming, her autobiography, about being this rags to riches story, someone who suffered from discrimination and overcame obstacles. In my book, in my film, Michelle Obama 2024, I do a full life history and I show that Michelle Obama was a very privileged kid from a political family. She, her father was a precinct captain, worked for the Democrat Party machine in Chicago. Michelle ran away from the black community for education, for kindergarten, elementary and high school. She went to study in exclusive schools with white kids. Her brother went to an exclusive Catholic school with all white kids. All this instead of going to the black school, which was a block from where they lived. So I chronicle all of this, that Michelle's uh, life story that she's been pushing is is all phony. And she's been chronically manipulating black and minority voters with these fake stories of racial discrimination and hardship in order to get their political votes. If if she's going to throw her hat in the ring, I would presume then that the the Democratic machine would gleefully, you know, get behind her. Uh, That leaves one obstacle in the way, and that's octogenarian Joe Biden. Uh, I mean, he's already indicated he plans on running in 2024. How are they going to, are they just going to push him aside, invoke the 25th Amendment if he doesn't go willingly? No, uh, Joe Biden can't admit right now that he's not running again because then he'd be a lame duck too early. So he's going to say, oh, I intend to run again. But in the past, he said he's just a transitional candidate. Uh, He doesn't consider himself a long-term president. Uh, There's no one in the Democrat Party that supports him running again. The Democrat Party is purging and getting rid of the older white generation, got rid of Andrew Cuomo, Hillary 76. They don't want her again. And Biden is clearly a a transitional figure. If he did choose to run, he wouldn't have any support and wouldn't have any money. 
uh, compared to Michelle Obama. She's the most popular Democrat. She was the keynote speaker for Joe Biden at the 2020 Democrat convention. That's the spot that introduces the candidate, just like Obama did for John Kerry in 2004. And that's the spot that they usually set aside for the person they think will be the nominee at the next convention. So, so Michelle Obama, she has this voter registration organization called When We All Vote. She's running around the country giving fiery speeches with all the Democrat talking points. So I believe she's already running for president. You can just look at her her Twitter account. She's got 100 million social media followers. She's all politics all the time. And it's just a matter of time. I think you'll see her declare for president uh, late next spring. How do you think a, a Michelle Obama uh, ticket would match up against Donald Trump ticket? Well, a lot has changed. You know, Donald Trump used to have about 60 or 80 million Twitter followers. He could control the narrative by simply sending out a couple of tweets every day. He would reach directly to his audience, his voters, and the media would cover whatever he tweeted. So his power to control the media and the narrative was was very high. Now he's been banned from all social media. So it's going to be hard for him to get his message out while Michelle Obama will be controlling the narrative every day. Uh, don't forget, the, because Michelle ticks all those boxes of the Democrats, uh, female, African-American, uh, if you criticize Michelle Obama, you'll be accused of being a racist, a sexist and a hater. So it's going to be a difficult landscape for Trump to to deal with her. But if he read my book, Dreams, for, uh, my book uh, or saw the film, Michelle Obama 2024, there are ways to deal with her. And I, as I say, only the truth can stop her. If he started out by saying, Michelle, are you going to apologize for what you did to the black community in Chicago, for example, that would open a whole can of worms because in her professional career in Chicago, I detail in my film and book, uh, she sold out the black community. She was the assistant planning commissioner working for the mayor of Chicago, Mayor Daley, when they knocked down the projects at Cabrini Green, they made 20,000 black people homeless and Michelle was in the planning department. So they could give that land away to these rich Democrat donor developers like Tony Resco. Then having proven how callous she was, she was hired by the white Democrat elites at the University of Chicago to prevent the South Side black community from using the emergency room at the hospital. Michelle would put them in these vans and dump them in these crappy neighborhood clinics so they couldn't have access to good health care. So Michelle has a, a shameful history of exploiting and abusing the black community. Uh, she grew up also running away from the black community in education. She didn't have any black friends. She said she was afraid of going out of her house because she'd get beat up for acting white or talking white. She even writes in her book, getting in a fist fight with a girl who called her an Oreo, meaning you're, you're black on the outside, but you're really a white girl on the inside. So Michelle has a very sordid history with the black community. And she's trying to cover that out by pretending to be one of these ordinary black folks that she spent her life exploiting. Joel, well, I'm sure we'll get you on again as, <clears throat> excuse me, as the midterms approach and, um, and after as we uh, get ready for the 2024 presidential election cycle. Joel Gilbert, the author of Michelle Obama 2024, and also the, uh, the documentary, How Do We Get Those Quickly? Yeah, please go to SalemNow.com, SalemNow.com for the film, uh, live stream or the DVD, Amazon.com for the book, MichelleObama24.com. Look at the trailer and you can link up to those sites as well. Fantastic. Joel, thank you as always. Thank you.
All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Declan, and Jacob. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again, God willing. I'll speak with you at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you tomorrow afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960am. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.